Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as this time we get to speak with Reisha Ismail, and we have a really fascinating conversation about multiple identities and what it's like to be born and grow up in New Zealand, but tracing your history back to other places. I really enjoyed this conversation, and we also learned about the Sakina Community Trust, which is doing some amazing work, in particular as we build towards remembering the March 15th attacks, and their focus is really on uniting the community, and the trustees are all women who lost some loved one during the attacks, whether it was a husband, a parent, or a sibling. They're doing some great work, so check out their link in the website to find out more. I also got the chance to hear about Raisha's work today as a counselor, and there's a link in the show notes to that as well. If you enjoy this, then why not check out the almost 300 other interviews in the back catalog. Seeds is about telling good stories and hearing conversations and about people's journeys. What is it that led them to do what they do today? And if you want to find out more about this project, check it out at theseeds.nz. And thank you to everybody who spreads the word about the podcast. Now let's get straight into this interview with Raisha. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Reisha Ismail. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I am too. And we, we had a bit of talking before we started, and I know that we're actually going to have a really fun conversation because I can already tell, um, yeah, just some of the things that we were talking about before. And the purpose of Seeds Podcast is really to look into people's stories, understand a bit of their background, and then understand some of the things that they're involved in today. Um, and in your case, I know that you're involved with the Sakina Community Trust. And so I'm really curious. I'd love to find out more about that because I know that arose after the shootings here in Christchurch. So I'd love to find out more about the philosophy, what you're aiming to achieve and what the future holds. But before we talk about that, I'd love to hear a bit about your story. So can you take us back in time, say when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was life like? Okay, so I am New Zealand-born Gujarati Indian and Muslim. Sounds like a bit of a mouthful with all those identities. Uh, and what I might do is start at three, because I feel that's quite a significant time. Uh, so when I was three years old, that was actually the first time I got to travel back to India with my family. And being three, I did not remember everything. However, I have these visual memories of things that I saw. And I can remember going back when I was 17 later on, and I was a bit more you know, able to understand and comprehend. And I remember walking into my great-great-grandmother's home, and I saw this. It looked like a giant treasure chest to me, but it's actually for storage. And I remember seeing it and going, oh, my gosh, I feel like I've been here before and I've seen this. And so I had these really embodied experiences going back to India. So I feel like my ancestral heritage is really strong. And in Indian culture, we usually identify from the village areas from our father's side. And so I'm technically originally from Adda Nosari Gujarat on the west side of India. That's amazing. I'm just thinking about the memories of as a three-year-old, like the colors and the and the things that you would have remembered. That's I, I I don't think I remember things from that age, but I guess it would have been a big impression when you were there, right? 
Yeah, and and obviously some of the stories are told to you. So my my mum would tell me stories, and my grandfather was a pretty significant person in terms of our historical heritage here in New Zealand. And so I always had this deep attachment to him, even before I met him. And particularly when I was 17, I was old enough to have the conversations. And I had fun stories shared with me, like apparently I used to play in the village and just disappear for hours. (laughs) And my my grandfather was quite vocal. So he would start yelling in the house going, where is she? She's been gone for ages. Nobody doesn't even care about her. What's she doing? So he'd go and venture out and find me. And I'd be, you know, a bit dusty and dirty playing outside and he'd bring me home. And (laughs) so I've been told some really interesting stories too. And so even before I met him in memory, I was able to go, oh, I know you. And so we had some really great conversations when I was 17 around his time in New Zealand and how his life was uh, previously. And that was pretty special. Uh, So, you know, connecting my New Zealand heritage to my Indian heritage was pretty powerful. That's really, that's really great. And one of the things I love about the podcast is that I hope that it models for other people the importance of stories And so even you're telling that story there, it just shows how powerful it is that we talk with each other, you know, Mm -hmm. and tell stories about the past. And yeah, so what was it like for you? Like, I get the sense that, you know, you kind of have grown up with the dual heritage, um, which obviously has a lot of positives, but there could be some, some, because I have a similar thing. I moved to New Zealand when I was seven years old, so I have an accent and mm-hmm. people hear me speak and they assume that I've like just gotten off the plane, you know, <laughs> but I, I, we moved here in 1984, like New Zealand is my home from basically my entire life. Um, t- talk us through that in terms of what that was like growing up with kind of a, a dual heritage or a dual history because you're in New Zealand, but then with this strong linking back to some other place. Such a great question to ask, Stephen, because I feel in general, our ethnic migrant communities have such challenges and tensions of their own cultural identity. And I know for me, being a New Zealand-born Muslim and Indian, I grew up having tension with that because at home, you're brought up in your, your faith and you're brought up in your language and you're brought up with the values your parents want you to abide by and be part of, which are really powerful and they still obviously exist with me today. Having said that, you go out into the big outside world like school and education and you're getting different experiences and some of those are really powerful because they help you grow and others are challenging because it's that idea of who am I and where do I actually fit in and it's like am I meant to be a Kiwi or a New Zealander? Am I meant to be a Gujarati? Am I meant to be a Muslim? And so there's these pulls and tensions that just constantly flow and ebb. And I feel it's a journey. I I feel I've grown and learned as a person and developed to allow me to embrace all parts of myself. And later on, when I connect back to Sakina, trust you'll get that connection of how that's evolved. And I feel as though in terms of my growth, I remember being a child and not wanting to be known as a Muslim and I wanted to be known as a Kiwi. So I went through that phase. So if anybody asks me that typical question people get asked when you look or sound a bit different, where are you from? And it can be a little bit like frustrating sometimes because you'll go, what do you mean where I'm from? I was born here. And so you almost feel like you have to justify yourself for being who you are. And then you'll get the second question, oh, where are you originally from? And then you end up having to, almost explain 
exactly where you're from and where you originate and having to make sense of all of that. So I feel like people in New Zealand often want to place you and, and identify you in a certain way. Uh, and then they respond to that with their own perceptive perception of who you are. And I've had funny comments like, oh, I've heard all Indians love Indian sweets. Do you like sweets? And, and you get these really odd comments and being a Kiwi on many levels, I'm like, actually, I prefer chocolate, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. And it, it just kind of, I, I think it, there is a sort of a human tendency, even not, not talking about New Zealand either. I'm talking about any yeah. country in the world where as humans, for some reason, it, we like to put things into little boxes and be like, okay, I understand you because now I understand that you're from South America and what I know about South America is this and this person over here, okay, they're from India and this person over here. It's kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of a limited viewpoint though of, of the perception of people and it doesn't allow for the depth of a person's story. And I guess you have to, you have to, I, I guess, understand that earlier. Um, if you're faced with that from a young age, if you're constantly being asked, where are you from? Where are you originally from? Right. It, it forces you to come to terms with your identity earlier on, maybe. Mm, and sometimes leave parts of yourself at the door. So uh, I'm also a primary trained teacher and I have been in education for close to 18 years. And I, I hear lots of like good work happening in terms of cultural capability and cultural competency, and it's grown and changed a lot in New Zealand. However, I still feel we've got a lot of work to do there. And I think of things like, uh, you know, the, the the dominant culture is how the how the curriculum is pitched. And so sometimes, you know, you'd get, like you'd feel like you couldn't share who you fully were. You'd leave part of yourself outside the classroom. Right. Uh, and and I still remember being quite young and about, I think it was, then it was standard two, so I must have been about seven. And I had a, a Maori teacher for the first time. And he's the only teacher, Stephen, that I can recall who allowed my faith to be in the classroom. And I wrote a three-part chapter story on Islam. <laughs> and I, back then it was typewriters. And I typed out the story and I wrote it and colored it and illustrated it because, you know, you had to do the writing process and publish and edit and all that. Right, and I still have the book today. One of them I found, and it's just such a powerful, memorable memory because I felt like I belonged in the outside world, and I thought, "Wow!" And and, and you know, I was so little, but it's like I could tell it to you as if it's happening today. That's how powerful it was, and it was a Maori teacher who I perceive actually gets what it means to not be the dominant culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really interesting. I love that story. And it actually comes up as a theme on the podcast because I do end up talking with lots of people who are from overseas but moved here. And I've, I've actually spoken to several Pacifica people. So from yeah. Tonga, Samoa, other places who've come here and then for the first time been outside of the normal society, you know, like that question, where are you originally from? <laughs> I'm just wondering, thinking about our listeners, because we get a wide variety of people listening what would you say would be some tools or some skills that we each could cultivate when it comes to conversations with people who don't look like us or sound like us? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Any, any reflections on that? Just trying oh. to help people to, yeah, be sensitive. I think I have two things that I think would be really helpful for that. Uh, the first one is be cautious of making assumptions and bias in mm. stereotypes and 
judgments of other people before you you know it's that classic quote don't book don't judge a book by its cover and I think especially in a country like New Zealand where there's so much diversity uh, trying to place people in a way that you want to see them isn't always going to be the right way and I think it's important to be aware of that even if it's reflecting on yourself internally why am I thinking this person is this or like this and where does that thought come from so I think that's about our internal growth and how do we overcome those assumptions we ask questions and we ask them respectfully uh for example you know that question where are you from could very easily be adapted to say tell me about yourself and it's so open-minded and it's so open to allowing that person to share whatever and whoever they are uh, without making a perception that they are potentially from somewhere uh, which displaces mm. the person immediately oh you don't you don't you're not a New Zealander you're from somewhere else even if like you you've said yourself you actually feel you are a Kiwi uh, so that would be my first one and probably the second one is challenging ourselves to seek knowledge and place ourselves in environments that allow that growth so uh, I do cultural competency workshops from time to time and I'm doing one on Monday actually and I've asked a group it's a, a counseling provider and I've asked them to do the workshop at the mosque and I think the majority or almost all I suspect have probably never set foot in a mosque and I intentionally do that to allow them to grow to say hey you know come to environments that are unfamiliar to you and be willing to experience a little bit of discomfort and grow from that experience and I think it's important. I mean, in Christchurch alone, we have the Somali Association, the Afghani Association, the Pakistani Association, the Indian Association. There's so many cultural communities in Christchurch alone. And if you're open to it, you know, they would openly invite you to their events or let you be part of their events. And what an amazing way to learn and grow about each other. And if you think about integration and unity and encouragement of learning from one another, it's such a great way to do that. Yeah. Mm. So and the reality it. is right now, anyway, it's very difficult to travel overseas. But as you point out, there's probably think of the country that you'd like to visit. There's probably somebody in this very city who, you know, mm-hmm. knows the culture, prepares the food, and mm-hmm. it, you could actually get the experience, um, at least to some extent. I really yeah. like what you're saying. And I think for me, um, I use the word curiosity a lot on this podcast, because I think being curious is one of the foundation platforms for us in order to really understand and get to know other people. And mm-hmm. so the, the way you frame that question, rather than it being like an inquisition, like, where are you from? You know, like a yes, no answer type of thing, you know, it more the tell me about yourself. It's that opening out of a conversation rather than it being like, a mm-hmm. there's a set answer here, right? It's, it's really, I like the way you, you frame that. So thank you for that. Can we come back to your life then? So you were born here, you did that travel. What what was life like for you in, say, your primary school years and, and getting into teenage years? Um, how, at, at what, ha, yeah, t- tell me, I guess, continuing that theme of how you fit in within New Zealand, because I think that story is really worth understanding. Sure. Uh, so I spent my childhood uh, in Barber Street in Christchurch, New Zealand, over on the now I'm on the west side of town, so that's I think it's more the east, I suspect. And so I have I grew up on that street, and that historically has a lot of significance for me and my family, because it's actually my grandfather's first house that he bought is on that street, 
And the first home that my family bought was also on that street. And my auntie and uncle currently still live on that, that same street. Uh, so I feel like my beginnings was there. And I went to Phillipstown Primary. Uh, we were very much part of the Gujarati Indian community at that time. So I remember weekends would be going out to visit all the community friends uh, and, you know, having a lot of fizzy drink and treats as you went along the way <laughs> and, you know, getting that welcoming sort of welcome from our close friends at the time. So we had a sense of community as well. Uh, and when I was, uh, I think it was nine, we had quite a significant change where our family ended up moving to Hornby and we bought uh, our family business. So like a lot of Indian families, uh, they do like to be their own bosses. So they end up buying small businesses. And so we bought uh, a dairy. And so I feel like we are semi-famous in the Hornby community because we've been there now for 33 years. And Springs Road Dairy is known. And, you know, we have customers that came in the shop for a long time that, you know, I can see today and they go, oh, I haven't seen you in ages. Nice to see you, you know. So we like, we've become part of the community over the side of town. And so I grew up... Uh, from about 10, I feel it was challenging yet advantageous. So you're pretty popular when you are part of a shop. You know, your friends want to visit you. <laughs> so I, I have memories of lots of socialising and playing at the back of the shop. And we had the house, we, uh, had the house next door as well, so playing there a lot. So I have some very positive, happy memories. Uh, I feel I gained a lot of work ethic because I was almost like my mum's mini to IC. So her and I <laughs> did, a lot of, did a lot of the setting up of the shop and I learned to serve customers I improved my math skills phenomenally <laughs> and, and, and you know I do things like sweep the floor for mum or you know help fill the milk or fill the drinks and <clears throat> so I still remember being like I used to earn a little bit of pocket money I'd get a dollar a day for sweeping the floor and I had one day I got the day off because the shining man would come the pol to polish the floor so <laughs> And I'd go off to Whitcalls in Hornby and buy uh, Babysitter Club's books because I loved reading. Uh, and, you know, I really enjoyed that passion of uh, escaping into other worlds. So I read a lot and read a lot about travel and different countries and places as well. So I did a lot of that growing up too. And I used to read the magazines in the shop a lot. So if I was working on a Sunday in the mornings, sometimes I'd do like a shift and I'd be there on my own, especially in my teenage years. And so I'd collate all the magazines and just sit down and read them in between customers. So I, I wasn't always getting a lot of life experience out there. But I certainly read a lot. And <laughs> I developed a passion for health and well-being, I think, through that in those early days during my teen years. Because I'd read, you know, the silly magazines like Dolly and <laughs> Cleo. And, you know, I learned all sorts of interesting things through them. And sometimes I'd end up advising friends uh, particularly high school friends. And so I got this natural ability to be quite nurturing and supportive of others uh, just from probably upbringing, but also uh, just how I was engaging in my world and what I was doing. So I went to Rickerton High. Uh, that was my secondary school. And I was one of those people that quite like many, I was semi-introverted, fairly quietish. Uh, however, there was a lot there, you know, a lot of potential that could develop and grow. And I had a small group of friends. Uh, some of them followed me right through primary school up to secondary. And so I, I felt I have quite happy memories, but also lots of developmental things like any teenager does. Uh, but I do know that during high school, uh, I, I think I got to the semis for a speech competition. And that was probably the beginnings of this slightly more reserved, quieter, introverted girl 
finding a voice <laughs> and realizing I actually had one and I had a skill in public speaking. And so, yeah, it was quite interesting to grow in that way. So I feel I developed a lot in terms of my confidence and my capabilities uh, as well. And yeah, it was fun. Uh, and when I got to sort of that age, you know, when you have to decide where you want to go in life and what you've got to do, uh, for some reason, I naturally drew to being a teacher. Uh, and I ended up applying for a job, I mean, for a, an application at the teacher's college and got in immediately without an interview. So I just went into teaching straight away. Uh, I did consider counselling and just didn't work out that way. So, but funnily enough, I did that training later on, which I'm happy to tell you more about as well. That's great. So yeah. do you attribute, it sounds like that that reading was a big part of your um, high school years and reading, because there's lots of advice columns, there's lots of, you know, looking after yourself type of things in there. Do you attribute some of who you are today back to that experience, do you think? I think so. Uh, I mean, one of my uh, good friends nicknamed me uh, Oprah once. <laughs> <laughs> I used to just naturally like be a good listener and help people and answer their questions you know one of my best friends because my upbringing was a bit stricter being a Muslim like I wasn't allowed to you know go out all hours or you know we don't drink in our faith so I wasn't allowed to you know mum was a bit protective so I, was, I wasn't allowed to sort of do some of the things that other other kids perhaps were allowed to do a bit more freely which was one of the other tensions like we talked about earlier and mm. so sometimes that was also the reason I was often working or studying or at home and my mum's way of managing that integration aspect was to say, oh, the friends can come over and play with you. Well, the friends can come over and see you. So I used to have a lot of friends come and visit me. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of allowed me to, you know, have a social life in, you know, in a way that was you know, okay for mum, but also for me to grow as well. So, yeah, I did. And, yeah, I used to help a lot of friends. Uh, some of my more, you know, Kiwi Kiwi friends would show up at, you know, late in the night sometimes wanting a space to sleep. <laughs> Give my mum a heart attack knocking on my window. Rage, can I come? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it's really interesting to me, though. I think um, that's why I'm enjoying talking with you, just to hear other perspectives. And the reality is for many of us, we wouldn't, you know, we're not in your shoes. We don't know what it was like to grow up here and, and um, having that strong identity, but then being here within the New Zealand culture as well. Because I think um, it sounds like, you know, we were probably here in Christchurch at a similar time in a, in a way. Like I, we, we first moved to Christchurch in 1989. So I was growing up in the sort of 90s and 2000s. That was my time in Christchurch. But I love hearing your experience of it as well. And just while we're talking about it, that idea of working in your parents' Dairy, you know, there's an excellent series right now that the spinoff is doing, um, which is little videos. And it's just like little mini documentaries and not in your face. It's just they've set up cameras and they're filming children of immigrants who are then working in like fish and chips shops or dairies or whatever. And just giving the experience for from their perspective. Um, I'll try and find it and put a link in the show notes because it's something people who listen to this might might enjoy yeah. right. so so take us through the next couple of years then so you you know the education and becoming a teacher it sounds like that was the road that you were headed mm -hmm. down yeah what happened next so yeah that was a great experience actually so I went to Christchurch Teachers College and back then it was separate from the university they hadn't merged uh, and I chose to do a Bachelor of Education and it was probably the last intake that was able to do that 
particular qualification in that structure. And it was quite an interesting way to be because I did my study on the on the college campus and I used to walk across island fields to do my papers at the uni. And it was a structured course that allowed a mixture of uh, college work, but also the uni papers, which was a nice complementary way of working. Uh, different growth, I think, during that period of my life. Uh, and I mean, it took me a while to get my license. I got my license at that stage of my life, which was a big deal. You know, you get a lot of freedom once you learn to drive. And, you know, I have you know good memories of driving to the uni and trying to find a park and, you know, so lots of good personal life experiences as well. Uh, I grew in a different way during that time because I found uh, a community at the gym. And so it's the uni rec centre down there. And so I, I ended up being more exposed to a wider group of friends because you know at uni people come from all over and yeah. so my social networks grew uh i think there was there was still some continued tension and from home and through to being at, you know being in uni and being at school etc that transition uh so if you spoke to my mum she'd probably say i was a little bit rebellious at that age but I think it was quite low-level minor. <laughs> you know, it was just things like I'd want to stay at the gym, you know, for a few extra hours or, you know, I'd have some other friends I'd start uni till a bit later. And so, you know, being a Muslim parent, they worry that we're, you know, up to mischief as most of them. I, probably, I think most parents would worry somewhat, but I think when they're a Muslim parent, they worry about, you know, integration and, you know, the effect of that. So there was a little bit of tension going on at home. So sometimes the gym was a lovely escape for me. I'd just work out and feel pretty good uh and yeah enjoyed my courses I wouldn't say I, I think I wouldn't say I was you know a plus all the way through or anything like that because I had a good balance of social life but also study uh, I did pretty well at college so I was really focused on being a teacher uh whereas the uni papers I just did them <laughs> and I did, if I did well it was because I had some content base if I but you know I didn't put a lot of energy into that side of things but yeah I had a great time uh, so, so, after so that, what, what era are we talking about? What years were you doing so this? Was, uh, so I studied from 97 uh, up to, I think it was, so that's so four years. So I think about 2000 I finished. Yeah. You get, you get it's part of the thing. What I love about these conversations is that you start realizing that life, that, that we're all interconnected, you know, like you think that you're not in any way connected with someone like we've never met each other as far as I know, <laughs> but I was at Canterbury university from 1995 to 2001. So actually at some point in our mutual past, we probably walked by each other, you know, <laughs> or nodded to each other, or, you know, we're in the same elevator, who knows, but it, I think the reality is there's an interconnection. I like to think of it these days like a spider web. Mm -hmm. And actually, we're all points on the spider web. We just don't know it. <laughs> and we think of ourselves as little individuals, but we are interconnected in various ways. So, yeah, that's really cool that, that yeah. So, yeah, what happened next after you'd finished your study? Was teaching, sounds like that was a passion? Yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, again, grew a lot. You do a lot of reflective practice when you're teaching. So all of that allows your growth, which is quite great. Uh, I didn't find it all that easy. And I think sometimes that was actually cultural worldview differences because some of the teachers I worked with had a different style to myself. So it took me a bit of time to get momentum to actually feel confident as a teacher. And fortunately, in my last placement, I just had a good fit with my associate teacher. And so I just flourished. Uh, and that was really powerful for my growth. And then, you know, I still remember lots of tears because, you know, when you're being assessed, it's not easy as a teacher, but um, growing and moving through that. And then, so after that, I 
so at that time, Christchurch had a pretty big uh, overload of teachers. And so it was very difficult to get a job. And so I, I was relief teaching for a while. I was doing some Oscar programs that I'd been working on when I was studying and just continued some of that. So, I was, so for a little while, I was sort of in a bit of a in-between stage. Uh, and then I decided, <clears throat> actually, I want to go overseas like a lot of Kiwis like to do. I want to do my overseas travel. And I thought, okay, I really want to do this. How am I going to convince my family that I, so I can actually do this? Right. And so I had to sort of think about how am I going to get away to do this knowing I want to. And so I did a lot of background work. So I found an agent to help me get a school. I worked out travel arrangements, all that kind of thing. And kind of not because my parents were reasonably strict, you know, I mean, an Indian Muslim girl traveling alone, that's a big deal. <laughs> and so I thought, how am I going to overcome this challenge? And I thought, let me just take mum with me. Yeah, <laughs> 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 with me. And we eventually, and I remember going to the travel agent, it was Flight Center in Hornby, and mum would stand outside the door, almost resisting coming in. I said, mum, I'm going to do this with or without you. You know, so you might as well just support me. And eventually she did come around. And we had an amazing trip. We went to Panama and met my uh, my mother's side, my grandfather on that side of the family. And we have a lot of uh, extended family in Panama. So that was amazing. Wow. We went to Canada because we had other, like the thing with uh, ethnic migrants, they travel so much. So there's pretty much somebody somewhere. So you've got lots of places yeah. to visit, huh? Lots of, um, lots of free accommodation. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say <laughs> that's very efficient. <laughs> yeah, and then some friends were living in Canada and they were from Panama, so we stayed with them. And then we went to UK, so I did my most of my OE travel in UK and uh, I got uh, a job in it was a little small village called Overseal, and I think it was North Midlands. Apparently, it was the center of England. Uh, and had a very, what I would call a British experience. I lived in this big old uh, historical building. It was quite the manor. I had this whole corner of the house to myself, uh, first time away from home, and I went really far away and did it on my own, and so it was quite confronting. Uh, but that's it, that's really- it. I like how you um, saw, you know, you had a goal in mind, and then you realized, I need to take my mother on the journey with me if I'm going to be able to do this. So uh, come along. <laughs> so she was more comfortable than, I guess, seeing where you were going to be and that type yeah, of thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And still sad, obviously, and really worried. Uh, yeah. And of course, because, you know, parents worry, and especially our family, they do, our families. And so it was challenging for her yet she allowed me to do that and uh dad I actually think with dad I haven't talked much about dad because you can kind of tell mum mum did a lot more of the on hands-on parenting uh dad was a bit more of a free spirit and so he I think that's where that comes from that ability to risk take and to to go on adventures or do things that are a bit out there so I think that side of me comes from my dad because my mum I feel is a bit more cautious uh, so I feel like I'm the perfect fusion. I can take risks and be a bit more free-spirited, but also be quite structured about how I ch- ch- like channel things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting because normally, if a family has moved country or you know, like coming from India to New Zealand or something like that, um, it would then mean that they would be p- potentially more open to their children in turn traveling. I know it, it's actually a funny connection here. Another connection is that my mother was born in Panama. So she grew up in Panama speaking Spanish, 
And then wow. she moved to America later on. Her mother was from America. Her father was Panamanian. Wow. Um, but I think for her, her parents knew that they had traveled a lot. And then it was like, well, you're going to be, you know, <laughs> you're our child. We're pretty sure you're going to travel. So she ended up going to France for a while, back to America, and ended up in New Zealand. So it wow. just shows. Yeah. yeah. So at that point, like living in England, I'm, I, I love talking to you about this identity question. So, you know, when, how you presented when people would first meet you, would they be asking you the same question? And then what was your answer? Would you, would it be, I'm from like, the story is getting quite long, isn't it? I'm from New Zealand, but I'm originally yeah. from blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it was interesting, actually. So I, I first uh, arrived again, family everywhere. So my dad's older sister, my auntie and uh, uncle live in, lived in and live in Leicester. So I actually had cousins and extended family there to stay with. So I actually spent the first part of the trip staying with them. And I actually was really shocked because I walked into their neighborhood and I felt it felt more Indian than what I thought India was. Right. It, was like, it was like a time warp. I felt like I was going into a historical experience because the community, it's very, it's an interesting dynamic over there. So they cluster. And so you, you go into a certain part of England and the entire Indian Muslim community all lives in the same area. And there's Indian shops, Indian foods, Indian groceries, all in a similar space. So you knock on the door to your neighbor and it's another Muslim person that's Indian. Or, or very similar. And from what I've heard, it's like, so the Pakistani community might live nearby, but they, so they really cluster. And I was quite surprised. I actually felt quite uh, suppressed in some ways because I felt like I couldn't just go out and do stuff. Because even here, because I felt like Christchurch is, you know, I integrate a bit more, uh, no choice, you kind of just do. And so it was really interesting to go there and be shocked in a really different way. And my instinct was, this doesn't feel like England to me. <laughs> I need to get out of here because <laughs> I could have very easily worked in Leicester and stayed with my family and life would have probably been easier, you know, free meals, free accommodation. But that wasn't what I wanted to be there for. Right. And so I started to, because I didn't, I didn't get allocated in a school until a bit later after I arrived because they do interviews and things. And so I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to try and find somewhere different. And then this job came up at Overseal, this tiny little village school. And, you know, it was a year three class. And like I said earlier, it was, it reminded me of how I would think England is, you know, like the couple I lived with were about, they felt as British as I thought they could come because they would do a Sunday drive. They had like uh, a typical, you know, British car. Uh, their, their house was a historical building. <laughs> it was just like, it awesome. And the school I went to was predominantly uh, British, like European, you know, like, and so uh, there was a few other cultures there. Having said that, in some ways, I, I felt quite included in, in, because they had an RE curriculum. So I used to be able to teach this. They do this thing where you'd, you'd teach Sikhism one week, Judaism one week, uh, you know, Christianity one week, Islam another week. So I felt like in some ways they were quite inclusive in how they taught. Uh, I did have some fun experiences like challenges with my accent. <laughs> I, I remember doing my interview and they asked me to teach the class I would end up taking over uh, for about 10, 15 minutes. So I had, I had virtually no resources and I thought, okay, I better teach. So I did this little year three class. I did this little character study of the gingerbread man. And okay. 
and this wee boy said something and I could not understand him. And I'm, I'm being observed by the principal and the teacher, the head teacher, and I'm thinking, my gosh, what am I going to do? And then I thought, okay, I'll just praise him because I can't actually understand him. <laughs> so, you know, there was often some, even with the different accents, there were some challenges. Uh, but it was wonderful, like really, really welcoming school and just amazing. And I, th I think I had a really wonderful experience. Uh, challenge too, because it was quite lonely sometimes, because actually my grandfather, who I spoke about, passed away while I was there. And I remember being on my own in the classroom, hearing that news away from my entire family and going, oh my gosh, he's passed away. And so I also had some quite lonely experiences as well, which I think is part of travel, you know, homesickness and also your growth in terms of, I think in terms of identity, who am I? And for the first time, I'm away from everybody and everyone. I could have done whatever I wanted, wherever I wanted. So it really gave me a chance to reflect on my own values rather than what my parents may have brought me up with. Mm. Um, so it was good. And, you know, what is part of who I want to be as a culture and myself and my own belief. Mm. Uh, so it was good. It's a really important stage, I think, that um, sometimes I worry about... Um, so I had this very similar situation. So when I was 20 years old, I moved to Japan, wow. did not speaking the language, but just completely fish out of water, you know, like, where am I? Who am I? Questions. And people would ask me, where are you from? And, you know, they couldn't hear my accent. So it literally was, I was telling them I'm from New Zealand and they didn't have any preconceptions because of my accent. Um, and so it was very much a shaping for me about what do I believe, you know, what do I value rather than what my parents have taught me or anything. And I think sometimes it, I think it's possible if you grow up in the same place that mm -hmm. it, you may never, ever have that confronting questioning of who you are and your identity. And I mm -hmm. do wonder uh, if sometimes people go their entire life and they get to their seventies and they've never actually had to struggle with that. Um, mm. Not, not necessarily that that's a bad thing or anything. It's just, I think that OE experience or that um, confronting who am I, who do I, what do I believe is actually a really important stage. And with it can come doubts, mm -hmm. but doubts can't, they don't necessarily, they're not a bad thing. They, they then reinforce or help you to get to your own decisions. So yeah, it just resonates what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at, at, at some point, did you think like I could make a career and a life here in the UK or I could head back to New Zealand? Like, or was coming back to New Zealand always on your mind? Just talk us through that. I think coming home was definitely on my mind. Uh, I, I basically did the teaching because I finished out the year and then I went traveling and I did a typical key. I did a Kentucky. I had a friend from New Zealand come over. I had a few friends visit while I was there. So I still had that connection. And uh, so I feel like I got my, I, I got my whole experience put into place of all the things I wanted to achieve. And again, like you said, just really grew because traveling through Europe, you're exposed to, it's almost like every place you visit has something. Mm. And, and not just the touristy things, but lots of the different experiences you gain. Uh, and again, continuing to learn about who am I, where do I fit as well. Uh, but still, I got quite homesick and I started to feel I wanted to come back home. And coming home was interesting because I went from complete freedom, being on my own, 
to going straight back into my family home where um, right. mum would be like, where have you been? <laughs> and so I, I felt quite like constricted all of a sudden from all that freedom to like, and so that was a bit of a struggle coming home, actually. Uh, initially, it was great because I was happy to be home. And then I could feel that restriction coming back. Sure, and yeah. Struggling. Uh, I picked up a job quite quickly uh, at Burwood Primary School uh, on the east side of town. Uh, no longer there because of the earthquakes, uh, but had spent seven years there. And I started to feel quite challenged because I went from uh, being that independent and then I'd come home and go oh I'm, I'm looking after other people's children and I'm a grown-up out there but at home I felt like I was being still treated like I was quite young and so I really struggled and I had a really challenging time for a number of years and you're probably getting a bit of a theme now I'm a bit of a, a, a change maker I challenge things and at 25, there was pressure to get married because in our in Gujarati culture, it's often arranged marriages. It's often your parents help you select. And I was getting to that older end of that. And so there was a bit of pressure, you know, you need to get married, you should settle down. And I didn't want to do that. I felt I wanted to continue to do other things. I wasn't ready for that stage. And I felt quite uh, controlled and restricted because I thought, am I going to have to get married to get freedom? And I don't want that. So I had in my mind, I wanted to buy a house. <laughs> so I, I ended up saving up in, cause I was home and parent, Indian parents and cultural parents are quite amazing. They don't charge you board or anything like that. It's just, it's part of our collective culture. We live in, you just get taken care of. And that can, and especially being a girl, you get quite well looked after in that sense. So I was able to earn a fair bit of money while I was at home, which was enough for a good deposit. So I think this was in 2005 and six, roughly. Uh, I bought my own home. <laughs> and it's very unusual for a Muslim Indian girl to go, I'm leaving home and I'm going to buy my own home. Right. Uh, and again, there was tension. My parents took them a wee while to come around. Uh, again, similarly, I had to do some convincing. And eventually, I think mum realised it wasn't that I was trying to get away from the family. It was more I needed to move forward. And, you know, she did things like, and dad did too. He bought me a microwave and mum helped me buy my washing machine, my sofa. So eventually they came around. Uh, and so I lived by myself for a whole year in this house and did crazy things like renovations for the first time, like we like to do <laughs> DIY. Uh, and so I had another stage of growth, which is really cool. And then, and then I started to feel relationship lonely. I thought, oh, I need to share this with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so inadvertently the thing my parents wanted probably helped by me moving and so I ended up uh, going to India in Gujarat my my village thinking oh I'll just humor my parents and tick it off the list I can't imagine I'm going to meet anybody and I ended up going and I met somebody and I got engaged and I got married in the vicinity of a couple, less than a couple of months <laughs> to the shock of my friends and family here and, you know, people that know me here. And, right. <laughs> and you did what? <laughs> I'm quite surprised by that. Uh, and I can't describe it apart from saying it's like speed dating. You just, yeah, it's an interesting experience over there when you do that. Uh, and I had this amazing Indian style wedding in three-day event and just yeah it was like something out of a Bollywood film <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing um I'm just thinking you know this whole conversation has been full of it but the contrast between cultures 
because yeah. you bridge across multiple identities in some ways because you're as Kiwi as it comes, you know, like this is where you grew up. This is what you know. But then there's this other part of it, which is you go back to India and you meet someone and yeah, it's mm. a fascinating blend. Your life is. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes call it because I like to think about like Kiwi culture. I think that side of me, there's a very strong strength in terms of individually achieving you for yourself. Whereas our cultural communities are very collective. And so just like even getting married, like usually in a, you know, like for example, in a Kiwi culture, if people are wanting to get married, a lot of them aren't going to, you know, get their parents involved. They usually meet and then introduce the person. But for yeah. us, it's collective. So it's, it's quite, a, that's the, probably the tension. And so, you, can, you know, it's like, oh, what will other people think if you buy a home before getting married? And what they're meaning is what will the community say? How will people, you know, perceive us? And there's that, and so that's part of that cultural tension. Uh, and so that's part of what I was grappling with, you know, those, yeah. those tensions and pressures. And I think a lot of young people that are ethnic migrants, they, they are challenged by that on a daily basis in different ways. Yeah. Um, Have you seen the movie? I think it's called The Big Sick. Um, sounds like a strange title, but it kind of, it's a comedy movie, but it kind of addresses some of these tensions, basically about somebody in America, I think it's in Chicago or a big city, and and they've grown up in America because their parents had moved from India and are giving their children the, the better American life, but still holding on to the customs and the traditions of the past. So basically every weekend, he goes home and he's sitting around the table and there's a, there's a doorbell and the mother goes, Oh, I wonder who that could be. <laughs> and he goes and, uh, and she opens the door and says, Oh, I'm just in the neighborhood. It's a, you know, beautiful young Indian woman. And oh, oh, I'm yeah. just in the neighborhood. Oh, well come and join us for a meal. And, and it's just this really funny take on and told from the, the son's perspective, which is like, you came, f- you came to this country for a new life. And yet you're holding me to your expectations based on the culture where we were. And, mm-hmm. th- and there's this massive tension and not to give the whole spoiler. It's a, it's a really well done. I'll, I'll send you a link after, but um, basically it's this tension between the old uh, ways of thinking and then this new way of thinking. And of course he, he meets and falls in love with a uh, American woman. So then it's like, you know, what is it? What does it mean? How does he relate with his parents? Yeah, it's really, really good. I think it's one of the biggest fears of some Muslim parents that my child will meet somebody that isn't a Muslim <laughs> or isn't of our culture. Uh, so that, and, and I know I've seen I've seen many movies and things that have come out over the years on that theme. And yeah, as, as someone who's growing up and living it, yeah, I, I laugh knowingly when I watch films like that or series like that. And I've seen a number and yeah, you sit there going, yep. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely I'll send you a link to the little trailer anyway, and you can have a look. It's just, I just thought it was actually quite well. It's like a Hollywood blockbuster movie. So, you know, um, but just some of the tensions that you're describing. Just for you personally, then, like growing up as a teenager, knowing the culture and knowing that arranged marriage or that this was the way things were done. How, yeah, what was that like for you? did you just sort of think well this is the way it's going to be or yeah I I think it it was always there in the background and to me that tension of oh I don't want to upset my family and I want to live my life 
And those two things are quite conflicting. And so sometimes, you know, I, I mean, I like to think I'm quite likable. So I did have interest. Like I had, you know, suitors that would try and, you know, show their interest. And that was sometimes challenging because, you know, you're not, we're not, we're not allowed to. And so uh, it wasn't always easy to sort of have to somehow find a way of leading somebody down and saying, I don't think I want to date you and I don't think I can. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that happened quite a lot, like particularly through my teen and even my uni years. I'd have potential interests in, you know, it was tricky having to sort of find a way of navigating that. Uh, you know, yeah. someone, you know, and that's the that's the, the the culture here. You know, people ask people out. Oh, would you like to go out with me? Or would you like to go on a date? Or and so you'd be like, oh, how do I manage this? And so that, and even in the shop, I'd work in the shop, and I got a Valentine's one year, and this person asked me to go to the movies, and I'm like. Um, I can't do that. And, and to me, what I find happens is two things happen. Either people make a decision and go, no, I'm just going to shut that part of myself off and I'm going to focus on other things. Or they rebel, you know, or they, or they, they start pulling away from their culture and their faith and their families and parents. And so I almost think that one of the tensions is choice. People are, are struggling, and it's almost like they have to compromise one over the other, and that's hard. You know, I've got Muslim friends that I don't think they're really practicing anymore, and I think that's because of you know they've they've made that they've either met somebody that's of the other cultures, and so they follow that path, and so they're in this middle ground of tension of I am still sort of Muslim, and I still engage in my culture, but I've got a Kiwi husband, or I've got a you know, a Chinese husband or, a, you know, like they've got, an, and so then you get these mixed marriages, which I find really interesting. And mm. so then there's another layer of trying to work that dynamic out. Um, but yeah. yeah it's another, another layer of, um, in some ways, the complexity of, because, of, you know, we bring who we are and our histories to our relationships, whether mm -hmm. we realize it or not. And even, even across cultures that you might think would be very similar you know, like English and American or something mm -hmm. like that, you'd think, well, oh, it's basically Western, you know, but actually there, there could be ways that people interact or assume, you know, that yeah. this is the, this is the role of the particular partner and, and why would you be doing this? And I didn't understand. And yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So did you end up staying in India for some time then, or did you come back to New Zealand? Or uh, so at the what? time I was, I was, I actually went over during the school holidays. So I was still teaching at Burwood and I'm a bit of a, like my career is a very strong part of who I am. And I'm a bit of a high flyer when it comes to my work. So I actually stayed for, we, I think we, I came, I took some leave and came in sort of November, December, January. So I had, so I probably was there for just over two months. Uh, but basically we had a massive, you know, wedding ceremony and, and then about a week we had a week together and then I had to come home and I went back to teaching in hindsight I always thought oh I could have stayed and we could have had a honeymoon but I just didn't think like that my mind was oh I better get back to school you know we're starting right I've got responsibilities <laughs> yeah, yeah like I've had this amazing experience I better go home and so I came home and so we were separated uh trying to sort out visa things uh, for about three months and in a way it was a good thing because it slowed things down it actually gave us a chance to sort of caught each other and get to know each other and have fun and from a distance but it was you know that lovey-dovey romantic -y phase which is quite lovely and it was good but then uh once he got here uh, so we were married I'm no longer married and this is that's the other part of the story we were married for 11 years 
uh, and again, this theme of being a change maker, I believe I'm the first woman in my family to break a chain of a relationship that perhaps needed to be changed. Mm. And I've only reflected on that recently and gone, I think I may be the first one that went, nah, this isn't for me. And I made the choice to leave. And, mm. and that was hard. Again, collective decision-making in a marriage. And so when you make a decision like that, while it's for you and your life, you have to experience that idea of the, the community and the families. So it was quite challenging. However, I feel my more Kiwi side really helped me because I was able to make a decision to say, I need to do what's right for me. And so I separated and divorced in, oh gosh, been a number of about five, six years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it was a huge personal growth. And I don't regret marrying him and I don't regret my 11 years with him because I just continue to grow in a different way. <laughs> so <laughs> I started studying, uh, I think, two years prior to us separating in. I slowly chugged away again in a time where it was really stressful in the relationship. However, I chugged away. Uh, it sustained me, gave me that energy to focus on something as I was working. At that stage, I'd got a job. Uh, so I had uh, two jobs in between. I was a teacher training provider for the New Zealand Graduate School of Education. So I was there for five years. Uh, and then I ended up working, I got a job at the university teaching health science and health curriculum. And so my career was continuing to thrive. My personal life was just petering. And so I was very busy and very rejuvenated with my career. It just kept thriving, uh, but struggling with my personal life. And so I feel like work sustained me and as home was becoming more and more challenging. But So it was a tough time, actually, but also a big, big time of growth as well in another way. Lots of reflection and personal growth to make those decisions. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. A, I love hearing your story, and thank you for sharing so much about your life as well. It's really, I think, for listeners, it will be helpful to hear about the journey. And also, I just love your attitude that you seem to have approached things that were difficult and learned from them, you know, and rather than because things you can let it either become a bitterness or mm-hmm. it can be a source of growth. And it, it seems like you've been choosing that. Um, I'd, I'd love to find out about the Sakina Community Trust and things. Um, I know it, it's related in with shootings and it, that happened here in Christchurch. Can you just talk us through that stage of, of your life as well? And then sure. um, I'd love to hear a bit more about how you heard about the trust and, and what it's up to. Nice. So that's a perfect segue, actually, because I had separated and in January 2019 I had traveled overseas to Salt Lake City and I did my first international workshop through the university and so I had I was recovering really well and I'd been through my own counseling I was studying so I was starting to thrive again and so I felt I was in a pretty good space I was I was back at the gym I'd lost weight I was fit you know like things were starting to get better for myself and I was continuing to grow and March happens so March 15th, 2019, and I tragically lost my younger brother, uh, uh, Janaid. He was the older of a twin. And so it was, it was like I thought I had been through some tough times with my marriage, 
And this happens in my whole world and life just went book for a lot of our community. It did too. I went, what the heck? And this theme of identity that you're hearing, that was just so confronting. I was like, what is going on here? And so it was really interesting because when you experience a trauma in a marriage and you grow through it, uh, you start to understand yourself really well through awareness. So all I realized is I was mimicking similar experiences through the March attacks going, what's happened here? And being, I had a lot of recovery tools in place already, which I, th I think those 11 years helped me sustain myself during the March attacks and that the two years that all this has developed and happened. So as you've heard and you mentioned earlier, I like to work through adversity rather than let it do something to me. And so how I ended up at Sakina Trust, it's just been a natural progression. So prior to March 15th, I was, as you can hear, I was so busy in my own career. I didn't even have time for much to do with the Muslim community at all. Like I had minimal to no engagement. The attacks happen, go through all that experience personally and professionally, the community starts to find out I'm a registered teacher. They start to find out that, you know, I'm a counsellor. And so I'm starting to get the community phone calls <laughs> and people are uh, contacting me for projects that are happening. Many as a result of March 15th. So, you know, one is the Ministry of Education was doing ethnic migrant learning hubs and they needed educators. So I ended up running a number of those. Uh, so the first time I came across Sister Hamima, who was the chairperson of Sakina Trust, uh, was at some of these events that were happening in the community and I vividly remember her at a Muslim space forum and she approached me because again our community is very much word of mouth people start to talk and they go oh you should talk to sister Rasha she does this and she does that so I think she'd heard of me so she approaches me and she wanted me to help with some mental health project she had in mind which was actually attached to Sakina Trust but at that time I didn't know that uh, and then we crossed paths because of the community projects Sakina Trust was starting to work on through their focus on social cohesion and unity and work in the community of being future focused and wanting to make change around integration and understanding. I ended up working and hearing from her on another project she had of interest in education and because that, that's my field she invited me along. So we met on Zoom a few times, we had these meetings, and then after one of the meetings, she gives me this phone call, <laughs> and like I had often been getting, she's going, Raisha, I'd really like to invite you to join Sakina Trust, and I was like, what? <laughs> and I said, I don't know that much about it, but let me look into it, and I'll get back to you. And I sort of did know, because actually I'd had a coffee. I, I know uh, Angela Armstrong really well, because we used to have contact at the uni together. So she is the receptionist, or was the receptionist there at, at a short time. And so I had met with her for a coffee. So she told me a bit about it. So I knew a little bit. And she's also part of the trust. And then, uh, so I, I Googled. I thought, let me just search the website. And I read it. And I went through, and I went, ah, social cohesion. Yeah well-being wellness yeah <laughs> I read the stories of the people and the trustees I went yeah and I was pleasantly surprised how similar it was in terms of what it stood for and its philosophy and worldview it matched very strongly with a lot of my own growth and knowing it was about strong women in leadership and empowerment and it was widows people that had been impacted by the attacks 
it just I just felt like a like it was meant to happen. It was such a natural progression. So I just I think I texted back. I said, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> <laughs> and here I am, two months later. So that was in I think December last year. <laughs> so I'm the newest trustee to Sakina. So I'm finding my feet, and so far I really enjoy it because it aligns so strongly with what I believe needs to come out of this horrific tragedy and this adversity. And I often talk about uh, this idea of I want to have a space in New Zealand where I know my nieces and nephews who no longer have a father are able to not have some of the similar experiences I had growing up and Mm. to feel they can be all of who they are wherever they go. And to me, my focus is very strongly education and mental health and wellness because they're my passions. And they tie beautifully with some of the themes that Sakina Trust is working on. And so it's a very good match. Uh, So at the moment, uh, we're currently working on a unity week for the remembrance of March 15th uh, this year. And I'm involved in some of those projects. I've inadvertently taken on some of the social media work, (laughs) trying to promote Sakina Trust to get us known a bit more. Uh, And so, yeah, and this theme we've had today around cultural identity, I've raised a lot of that in some of the Facebook posts and tweets that I've posted because I want people to understand similarly what my stories shared around we can be all of ourselves wherever we go and we shouldn't have to disclose or not disclose parts of ourselves because we have fear. Because I realised through the attacks that I very rarely disclosed I was a Muslim and I don't traditionally wear the hijab. So people don't intentionally recognise me as a Muslim. How I remember students at uni saying after the attacks and they you know, would see me, they go, oh, we didn't realise you were Muslim. So I had in my own identity probably not revealed that part of myself. Now, like I used to introduce myself at workshops and things, I'd say, oh, I'm, I'm New Zealand born Indian. I would never say Muslim. And I reflected on that and I thought sometimes that was fear and sometimes that was just, it was hard to let people, you never knew how people would react to that. And so now I don't care. I'm like, I will say and be open and just, I remember writing my victim impact statement and thinking I'm not focusing on the event or that person. I'm going to focus on the future. And I believe Sakina Trust is very much about that too. How can we make change, especially in a space of social cohesion? And so I'm really excited. I'm excited about how we're moving, how we're growing. And I'd like to think I'm a fun new addition to the group. Uh, I think I'm probably the only one that's a mixture of New Zealand-born and Indian and Gujarati. I'm I'm probably unique in the sense I, like you've realised, I've worked through living in a mixed environment for a long time. So I'm hoping I can offer some new insight and thoughts and ideas to the team. Yeah. Uh, just amazing, amazing group of women. I mean, I texted them this morning and I sent them this warm, fluffy message saying, it's so great to be part of this group. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so we're just this beautiful group working hard on making change. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it's lovely to hear that story. And um, I, I think it just helps to ground the work of the Sakina Community Trust to hear stories of people involved in it. Um, and hopefully I can chat to some of the other people involved in the future. Um, for me, I think, uh, I, so I'm the voice of this podcast, but I also work as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So I got involved in the sense of I'm the one who wrote the trust deed <laughs> and helped to develop what are the purposes and worked with the, the, the people that you're mentioning to mm-hmm. get it off the ground. So it's always special for me to see 
because it's it's kind of a bit legal, you know, like sign this document here and then we upload it here and then, oh, congratulations, you're a registered charity. So yeah. it's lovely to actually meet you and hear some of your story and a bit more about what what actually is happening now. Um, and what we'll do is in the show notes, we can put links to things. So mm -hmm. if people are listening and they would like to find out more or get involved or, you know, anything like that, we will put a link to the website and I've, mm -hmm. I've got it in front of me. And I just noticed some of the themes, you know, focus on social, spiritual, physical, mm -hmm. psycho-emotional, you know, like that Tefare Tapafa model that mm -hmm. is so powerful <laughs> that it's more than you know, you can't look at things in isolation. You have to think of people holistically and communities holistically. And in a way, I feel like that's been a theme of our entire conversation. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> hearing, hearing your journey of discovery in the sense of what it was like to be a teenager growing up here and then what it was like to feel a bit of pressure around staying at home and then leaving mm -hmm. and coming back. And um, But it feels like for people listening, some of them will be going through similar journeys of working out how do they talk about themselves, which words do they use to describe themselves so that they fit certain boxes that then people can understand. And I like where you've come to, and I feel similar within my own identity as well, that, that you can be open about who you are and accept who you are in that sort of holistic way. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to be complicated. <laughs> Maybe that's the permission yeah. that I hear from this. You know, it's, it's, you don't have to fit a little box that somebody else has break open the box and be all that you are instead. And be okay about openness and vulnerability. And it's interesting. Mm. The, the things you alluded to in the website, uh, I, I was a health educator slash did health curriculum at uni. And all of that is about, and, and social community engagement and wellness so it just feels and fitted like a natural progression and so all those themes are so powerful and so strong and I think there's a lot of hope I often use the terms hope and healing uh, in terms of moving forward for us as a community and I, as a counsellor I often tell no matter what my clients bring into the door I'll often say to them allow your adversity to do something for you rather than something to you and I feel my linked to Sakina Trust as part of that philosophy. Uh, yeah, that's really good. And just I'm just thinking as well for people who, you know, it, obviously for those of us here in Christchurch, like I remember hearing the news coming in about the shootings and what's going on and everything's in lockdown and things. Um, and then there was this incredible outpouring of, um, you know, they are us type of phrases and coming together. I'm just thinking, though, as time goes on, what would be some of the messages that you'd like people who were touched, but not in the same way as you to know about the community? Or um, how can we continue to foster that idea that we're, we are all one community rather than separate little, you know, groups? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's, it's, learning to get to know each other more and I think it's and I believe it's both ways so I'm when I work with the Muslim community now like I'm doing some workshops for uh, flourishing families this afternoon which is one of the ministry learning hubs and I, I'm going to try I'm helping our community say hey we need to get out there and, and be open to saying who we are so people see that Muslims are just like anybody else we, we're, we're all we're connected by a faith 
however, we're all very different, very diverse from different parts of the world. We've all got our own stories. And so I think it's about this idea of getting to know each other. And I think vulnerability, empathy, cultural sensitivity, uh, open-mindedness, being willing to have some of those confrontational, challenging conversations and grapple with them so we learn and grow. I think there's still a lot of work to be done uh, and I'm doing my bit in terms of what I feel I can do in schools uh, already and as part of the Ministry of Education and as part of Sakina Trust so I feel you know really allowing people to be able to continue to find ways of helping you know even little things like don't be a bystander and do nothing if you see or hear something even if it's a small comment that comes across is disrespectful you know I think Kiwis in some ways we're a little bit reserved and introverted and we don't always speak up and I'm learning in my own self that I'm finding a lot more voice I'm a public speaker I have been for years I've been you know I'm a teacher educator and I'm still learning to speak up and say things when they're not okay you know being boundaried and saying actually you know what you just said then I'm just curious you know what's where's that come from you know even if it's reflecting back a question to help deepen their understanding is enough to make somebody think twice when they post something, write something, make a comment, be judgmental. And I think that's both ways because in, because the theme of judgmental or assumptions, biases can be anywhere. I, I have them. You'll have them. We all do. We just need to be willing to work with those experiences and learn from them. Uh, so that's, I could talk lots about that, but that's some of the things. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's really powerful. And what we'll do is in the show notes, if if you're willing to curate or think of any resources for people that we could include, and then we can have links. And then if people are interested, they can click and find more. Um, And I know the the website that we mentioned has some good material as well. So yeah, that's awesome. It'd be wonderful if people could uh, get behind Unity Week. Uh, We're hoping it's primarily Christchurch focused at the moment we're hoping uh, we've had some good support from the Christchurch City Council Uh, we're thinking in the future it could become a national remembrance Mm -hmm. Uh, and to me tell us tell us about what that is because we haven't really touched on it in detail yet so yeah what's happening during Unity Week and how can people get involved so it's still in its new development phase so this mm-hmm. is the first year we're initiating that so we've started with a number of uh agencies that have that we've connected with already that are willing to do things in the community around so it's basically a week around that time to allow uh organizations you know anywhere staff rooms uh workplaces like your, your workplace you know to really look at ways of how do we encourage unity and it's so the organizations that are on board with us so far are doing activities to support that so for example uh, the ministry of education is going to run an event for young youth who have who have got leadership qualities and are making changes and they're doing a breakfast during that week uh, to support them to help them you know build confidence and grow uh, there's a few other organizations who are creating events that just celebrate culture and you know show show showcase who they are uh, to me I think if workplaces can do things like you know what unites us as a workplace what can we do to improve our workplace cultures to be more of who we are together as a culture you know like uh, even sharing different experiences uh, what you've talked about today sharing our stories learning about each other a bit more uh, and really inviting and encouraging people to realize we're not all that different 
That's great. Well, we'll put, yeah, we'll put information in the show notes so people can find out more. And um, yeah, I guess there's going to be ways if we choose to, there's different ways we can get involved, isn't there? Either oh. attending things or behind the scenes, mm-hmm. helping prepare whatever it is, food or um, get venues ready, all that type of thing. So, well, Raisha, it's been great to have you on this podcast. I really appreciated hearing about your journey. And thank you for your willingness to share so openly about the vulnerable parts as well. I think that came through as a theme, but also I've just really appreciated your attitude. Like clearly you've got an approach to life where when, when things happen that are unexpected, um, that you've kind of used it as, as, uh, an impetus to do something positive. So that's, that's really, um, important. And I think that for listeners, um, there will be things in each of our lives where, Um, we can learn from the attitude that you're displaying. So thanks so much for sharing with us and um, look forward to learning more about um, what's happening for the Sakina Community Trust. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Had a lot of fun. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Reisha. For me, there was lots of things that stood out. And as you can tell, we went all over the place. As an immigrant myself, I really enjoyed hearing her story. And I also really loved knowing a bit more about the Sakina Community Trust and what it is that they're up to. Make sure you check out the links which are in the show notes to find out more. And don't forget, there's several hundred other interviews in the back catalog. So you might want to check those out as well. Until next time.